This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 1st, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The new fight over Religious Freedom Restoration Act statutes passed in 19 states is one that conveniently ignores the basic right of free association enshrined in the First Amendment. Cato Institute Vice President for Legal Affairs Roger Pallon argues that the key distinction on matters of religious liberty and discrimination is the difference between rights and values. It's been quite a week of battle between proponents of religious liberty and proponents of non-discrimination. In fact, um, one cannot help but think that this has a lot to do with the Final Four, which is going to be held in um, Indianapolis. One cannot help but think that the LGBT community in particular saw this opportunity because we've seen quite a firestorm over the past few days. Uh, For example, a friend of mine in Chicago told me that the Chicago Tribune over the weekend had stories about the Indiana bill on the front page, on the opinion pages, on the sports pages, the business pages, the entertainment pages, and so forth, all of which has brought to the fore the conflict between these two strains of our law. And so I suppose the first question is, um, if we want to protect religious liberty, why is it that the uh, First Amendment isn't sufficient for that? And it turns out that the reason is, is because since that amendment was ratified, we have had a surfeit of legislation, federal, state, and local, all of which implicates the government in actions that in principle and in fact can often compromise religious liberty. And so we have had this tension growing over the years. And probably the most important act uh, in all of that legislation is the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was passed in order to end Jim Crow. But what it required was not simply the end of public discrimination, as Jim Crow amounted to, but also the end of private discrimination. And that's where the difficulties start to come up because it raises the question of whether we still have freedom of association of the kind that we enjoyed prior to the Civil Rights Act, such that a person had not only the right to associate with whomever he wanted, to associate with that was willing to associate with him as against third-party interference, but also the right not to associate with someone for any reason, good or bad, or no reason at all. In other words, could he be compelled to associate someone, which is exactly what anti-discrimination law requires, namely that you cannot uh, refuse to associate with someone on the basis of certain categories, race being prominent among them, but those categories have expanded over the years. And that's pretty much where we stood until a 1990 decision by the Supreme Court uh, from Oregon, uh, which uh, was the Smith decision, whereby two Native American employees of the state were fired uh, for the use of peyote in a religious ceremony, and they brought an action against the state. And the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia writing, held that 
the, uh, they could not uh, prevail uh, against a law of general applicability that was not directed at uh, religious uh, exercise specifically. And so that created a firestorm in the country, uh, especially among religious people, but also the ACLU joined in and many other organizations to restore religious freedom. And it's from that that we got the 1993 Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And it was uh, promoted by then uh, Congressman Schumer, Chuck Schumer, and Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, and members of uh, both parties. In fact, it was by voice vote in the um, in the House and in the Senate. It was 97 to three, and President Clinton signed it. Uh, there followed. Uh, state actions uh, of the same kind because uh, the RIFRA was held to be uh, not applicable to the states. And the state actions, including the state of Illinois, where the Senate, in which uh, was sitting one Obama, uh, one Barack Obama, unanimously upheld that state. So today we have 19 states that have passed their own state RIFRAs, and we have 11 more states. That where the courts, the Supreme Courts of the states have ruled that their state constitutions amount to a RIFRA, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So that's the background before we get to the Indiana imbroglio. I guess how broadly similar are these laws, the federal government and state laws? They are very similar. Um, there are nuances, uh, difference between them. The main issue has been uh, whether not only you could uh, bring uh, an action under RIFRA against a statute that implicated uh, your religious liberty, but also whether you could use RIFRA as a defense against a private action that you had discriminated against per a person. And uh, four circuit courts have upheld the idea that it does entail, RIFRA does entail the right to invoke uh, a defense uh, against a private action. There have been two circuits that have ruled otherwise, but that's the state of the law today. And so the, the um, uh, Indiana statute is really no different uh, than um, every other state statutes in any material way. All right. So uh, you took issue with uh, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, and uh, an op-ed that he wrote basically arguing that these kinds of laws in, as you note, 19 states amount to institutionalizing discrimination. Yes, and he went further and said that uh, these laws are f uh, contrary to our fundamental principles as a nation, namely freedom and equality, and nothing could be further from the truth. The fundamental principle is that as the Declaration says, we are born free and we continue to be free as we plan and live our lives. Uh, the problem arises, as I said at the outset, with the um, idea that anti-discrimination laws can apply to private associations. Obviously, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and the clause that's implicit in the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause prohibit government from discriminating uh, except on grounds that are narrowly tailored to serve the function of the government. But private people have always been thought to be able to pick and choose their relationships as they think best for themselves. The anti-discrimination laws have intruded on that. Now, 
some of that intrusion is perfectly legitimate based on common law principles dealing with, for example, public accommodations. If you run a hotel or a restaurant, uh, you cannot, you've got to serve all comers. But what we've got here in, in these uh, RIFRA cases usually is the, a small entrepreneur, say a baker or a florist or a photographer, who is asked uh, by a same-sex couple to serve at their wedding as a florist or a photographer uh, or what have you. That's where the issue comes up. And a person of deeply held religious beliefs who opposes same-sex marriage can understandably not want to associate uh, to, to lend his or her imprimatur to that kind of relationship. We may disagree with it. I do myself. But that's not the point. The point is whether this person should have uh, a right to say, no, I would uh, prefer, I, I will decline to be the photographer at your wedding. Now, why a same-sex couple would want to compel such a person to do the photography or the floral arrangements or, or bake the cake for the wedding is quite another matter. I mean, it isn't as though there is a shortage in most, uh, certainly urban areas, of florists or bakers or photographers. And so we can see here that uh, a point is being made by these folks. And that brings us to a distinction that you draw, which I, I think is an important but pretty subtle distinction, one that is missed by a lot of the discussion about about this, which is the difference between rights and values. Yes. Uh, and this came out in uh, the Tim Cook piece in the Washington Post. The distinction between rights and values is implicit in the Declaration of Independence speaking of the right to pursue happiness. What makes you happy isn't necessarily what makes me happy. Uh, the idea is that we have objective rights to pursue our subjective values, even though doing so may offend our neighbor. That's the very essence of freedom. Uh, it's very uh, we understand that usually in the First Amendment context. The First Amendment doesn't it doesn't simply pre protect popular speech. It protects unpopular speech especially. Well, here too we've got a situation whereby uh, you may have reasons for not wanting to associate with someone that are offensive to that person and are affront to that person. Well, in a free society, you should have the right to do that. And so what you have to do is distinguish between rights and values. The law is designed to secure our rights to pursue values even though other people, our neighbors, may find those pursuits uh, offensive to them. That's at the core of a free society. Roger Pallon is vice president for legal affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.